Hi, everyone. Um, first of all, I'd just like to say thank you for everyone uh, to come, for coming. Uh, I know IFRS 4 is riveting for some, particularly my panel members uh, over here. More about them in a second, but it's, it's not that way for everyone. And as ever, we always seem to get the slot in the afternoon session. At least it's not immediately after lunch, but uh, uh, people aren't always the most wide awake at this point. So to try and address that, uh, I thought this year, instead of just being a dry update uh, of what are the latest of developments uh, and some very sort of technical sort of jargon flowing around, um, it might still be dry because I've got actuaries on the panel, but... Um, what I thought is I would invite a bunch of practitioners uh, to talk to us about what are they actually sort of seeing with the developments and give their perspective, their views on developments, and then how things are progressing and, and what they're sort of doing. So with, with that as background, first of all, I need to do some introductions. Uh, so first of all, myself, I'm Peter Trapp. I'm a director at Deloitte. And for my sins, I've been following IFRS 4 for Oh, more than 10 years. I'm a bit of a black sheep within our actuarial practice for that. Uh, admittedly, I, I still don't know the difference between debits and credits, so that's my defense. I'm still an actuary. Uh, but then my panel, uh, who will be actually doing the hard work answering the questions and talking to you this afternoon, uh, we've got representatives, and I'll describe them. I don't want to spend too long on introductions. Basically, I'll describe them all as valuations actuary type people um, from the big four companies. Um, so we've got Henny Miller over here from Old Mutual, Henny van Veik next to him from Sunlum, just to confuse you, so the two Hennies right next to each other, then Michael Fuchs from Liberty, Quinton Kraling from uh, MMI, and then uh, closing out the panel, I've got Ray Bennett, who's a director in our Johannesburg practice, uh, and specifically Ray will try and help, you know, sort of give some perspective from the smaller companies in the industry. Uh, and then a special guest or mention at the end is uh, Jeremy Menzies, who's a director in our Hong Kong practice of Deloitte, uh, to provide an international perspective on what companies are, what are we sort of seeing globally? Uh, are people actually doing anything? Do they think anything's going to happen on this front at all? So, so that's their background. And um, yeah, our time's relatively sort of constrained. So um, I, yeah. Ray's going to sort of jump up every now and then if we start straying off or I'm not uh, keeping to time too much. Uh, the general format, as I said, is I want to sort of cover the practical things. We're going to sort of start off with what do you actually think about? Is this going to happen? And if so, what are you doing about it? And then, you know, sort of questions about understanding the efforts, um, you know, that you think is, is involved. But I think as a bit of background before we get into that, because not everybody's following it that religiously. We do, unfortunately, have to do a bit of medicine and cover you know, some of the terminology and, and technical side of things. So I'll, I promise I'll just keep it. I think I've got three slides just to give a recap uh, before uh, I sort of lob the, the questions uh, to the panel. So I think I've got the right button, the green one that says forward. Or if the remote doesn't work, you guys can maybe shift it forward yourselves. <laughs> I promise there is more than one slide. They're not all the same. <clears throat> I 
Sorry, technology guys, is there any, are there any other remotes or is there any help? Okay. Um, right, okay. I'll, sorry, are you, is somebody going to get, go and get that shortly? Shortly, okay. Um, so I'll kick off without a picture. The first slide is the usual timeline one. You might be familiar with it. Um, just giving you some sort of background, you know, reminding us that there was an exposure draft in 2013. Uh, there have been a number of, sort of questions you know, that have been directed um, that the ISB wants uh, sort of covered. And um, I think in my view, or, or quite a few people's view, a lot of those questions have been largely sort of answered. Um, you know, so that's one of the questions I want to sort of lob at the panel is whether they sort of share that view that we've addressed most of the conceptual uh, sort of blockages. Then another sort of crinkle in the works has been IFRS 9, the new accounting standard for financial instruments, as uh, was issued last year with um, you know, effective date in 2016. And just, you know, that is going to, you know, goes hand in hand with uh, the financials of an insurance company. So it's the asset side of, you, you know, we're used to looking after liabilities. Um, just very recently, um, an option has been granted for companies to potentially defer implementation of IFRS 9, or this is insurance companies. So just the question is whether that's important in our lives. Do we care about something like that? Um, and then, yeah, just the implementation date. You know, the timeline, uh, the ISB says uh, or estimates that they'll get the final standard out next year and will give three years uh, for implementation. So you're looking at a January 2020 um, as first-time implementation. You know, so again, that's going to be sort of a question is whether we believe that's uh, going to be met. Bearing in mind, well, I'll leave something else bearing in mind. Then uh, the next slide, uh, I don't know whether this probably not working yet. Uh, the next slide is also uh, a, a different version of the timeline thing, but it's more of a, one of those like project plan things. And here it's sort of saying, you know, if we believe that this is going to be implemented in 2020 and um, we've got to have everything in order then, uh, working backwards, what does that mean? What is the impact for us now? So, you know, we might want some things, I don't know, not, uh, not everybody might want these, but maybe you want a parallel run sort of before you actually switch everything on. Um, you know, you've got to think about that. You know, maybe also you've got to think about sort of testing. Uh, then there's sort of transition on the initial, you know, first balance sheet that you prepare. You've got a complete sort of change in liability and you, you know, got a lot of, sort of questions around, um, you know, different approaches, different assumptions to use. Do we want a large uh, sort of profit to come out of that enforced portfolio or do we want something smaller? Uh, you know, so lots of questions around that. And, and then also, if you think about, if you work backwards from that, that means you probably need a lot of this in place by 2018. Um, okay. So I'll do the next one. Okay. Um, I think we've kind of caught up. Um, and then, you know, sort of, you know, so you're working backwards. You probably need a lot of your infrastructure in place by 2018 uh, to start uh, doing some of these things in time for 2020. And even before that, you need to probably need to be doing budgeting and forecasting for your various sort of stakeholders. Um, you know, so it's 2020 might sound like a long time away, but maybe it's not. And uh, again, I want to sort of get the panel's you know, sort of perspective on that. Right, that's I think enough of me. Um, no, no, no. There's one more. Uh, the building blocks approach. Just to remind you all, um, 
Similar to SAM in some ways, you've got this best estimate cash flows with discounting, with a risk margin to reflect uncertainty, um, but then so topping it up is this new concept, the contractual service margin, which basically uh, mops up any profit at inception, so no profit is recognized exception. That doesn't mean non, you know, no negative liabilities, because um, you know, I think there are some views that, oh, well, okay, that sort of sets your liabilities all to being zero at, you know, at most, well, at least. Um, but actually, as you sort of step past your initial point, uh, that your remaining liabilities can actually sort of, well, your liabilities can go negative, but I'll try not to get too tech. I'm staying away from technical. Um, I think those were the key themes I wanted just to sensitize you to uh, before handing over you know, to, you know, to the panel members. So uh, I've already used a lot more time than I planned, so without further ado, maybe starting with you, Henny. Um, what are your views? Uh, do you think it's actually really around the corner? Are we going to get it next year? And yeah, you know, sort of what are you doing about it, if so? Okay, well, firstly, I'm probably still a bit skeptical about whether the standard will actually be released next year. Um, and the reason I'm saying that is the, the new variable fee for service model that's been developed for participation contracts. Um, my view is just that the criteria to use that that model is, is very strict, and I, I do anticipate that a lot of participation contracts might not be able, that you might not be able to use that, that model. And I'm, I'm very worried that there might be some big insurers in Europe that might start lobbying for something else, and then there's a kind of a, a potential further delay um, in, the, in the final standard. Um, but that being said, I, I do think it's probably the right thing at, at this stage to start planning towards the standard being published at the end of next year. And, and get your house in order. Um, from our mutual perspective, we've done quite a lot um, to come up with the project plan, working back from, from a 1 January 2020 date, and looking at all the resource requirements, um, looking at systems changes, and, and using that to inform a, a project budget um, over the business planning period. Um, so I do, I do think it's probably at this stage quite difficult to work out what the profit impact will be as a result of the new standard, but it's clearly significantly easier to start thinking about how much it will cost you to implement the new standard and starting to allow for that in your IFRS profit projections and potentially also even in your embedded value calculations. Um, yeah, I, I don't think we'll start a formal project um, until the IFRS standard is, is released. Um, but we certainly planned a lot of work um, over, over 2016 already. Um, I do think we'll, we'll look into the new concepts introduced by the standard, like the contractual service margin, and also the optionality that the new standard um, will provide. Um, the standard's very principles-based, so there's definitely certain areas where you can have a different interpretation from another company. And I do think it's important that you, at, at this stage, apply your mind to to those options that are, that are available to you and to make the right long-term decision. Um, over the last two years, we've, um, we've had an internal working group at Old Mutual, um, a group of actuaries and consultants that we expect will play a key role in, in the f implementation of IFRS 4. And, and the main purpose was just to kind of look at how the IFRS standard will, will impact our main product groupings. Um, Mm. Um, so we did a lot of that, and we've also 
conducted a lot of awareness sessions and education sessions with our financial management in the different business units and also had sessions with our product development teams and balance sheet management just to make them familiar with the new standard also um, so that they start allowing for, for that in, the, in any long-term business decisions that we take now and um, that you don't make kind of any decisions now that you that along, along the line you kind of felt it's maybe not the right decision then. Um, we've also been quite active in lobbying certain issues um, that we see um, that, that needs to change and either directly with the ISP board or, or through SAICA and yeah, maybe that's kind of what we're doing at, at this stage. Yeah, yeah. Okay, no, that's great. That's uh, I think a lot of really sort of good points. Yeah. Um, so I mean, Henny, you know, from your well, Henny van Veek, uh, this sort of time, always got to sort of clarify. You know, so Henny Mullen, you know, made some sort of comment, you know, made a comment about, you know, at, at the moment don't really sort of have a full-blown sort of project, you know, sort of structure in place. Um, again, with a view to, you know, do you think you know, things are sort of happening? Uh, what's your perspective on setting up projects and the, the, some of the challenges around that? Yeah, I think very similar on our side, although I think we're a little bit behind as far as the project is concerned. We, we haven't really looked at at a product plan or, or cost on, as far as that's concerned. I think we will really wait that until the final standard comes out. I mean, if I were a betting man, which luckily I'm not, I would have lost a lot of money on whether the standard would ever be implemented or not. I was wrong for many years. Uh, I think this year was the first year I was right. I said they would net, not get the ex exposure draft out this year, and I was correct. Uh, we are worried that because of the major changes they've made to participate in contracts that they might have to re-expose the draft again. Mm. I think there's definitely a possibility. <clears throat> in which case I might be retired before they actually implement it. Yeah, I think that's a common theme of quite a few, actually. So I think Andre's got it right. But yeah. <laughs> um, Quinton, uh, I mean, your views on you know, sort of getting buy-in um, you know, for project and sort of commitment. Yeah, I think, uh, I think we've uh, probably experienced the same kind of, of um, attitude within, within the group, within our group. Um, Without a, a firm standard and without a firm date, I think there's always something more important that we can apply our resources to, and uh, up to now that has predominantly been, been um, consumed by SAM. Um, but I, I suspect as the, the dust of SAM is now starting to settle and it becomes part of our, of our business as usual, we will probably start um, wanting to do something else over weekends. And... Um, <laughs> And this, uh, this will probably be the next big thing that yeah. will consume us. Um, so I, I think the first thing is probably to, to get the buy-in from the board um, and executive management, just that this standard is not a theoretical thing anymore. It's on its way. There may be some tweaks coming, but uh, yes, we probably do need to start escalating it. Mm -hmm. And Michael, from yeah, Liberty's I, I perspective? You... I think for Liberty it's largely been the same. Um, it's difficult to get momentum without a final standard. Um, and I think we've taken the view that until a final standard, the main part that we'll play in here is to do active lobbying and contribute to field tests and that to try influence the direction as we think it should be. Um, my view of it, they will expose, uh, or they will have an exposure draft next year. Uh, just more for formalities, I think they are going to... Um, they pretty much know all the issues, but because they've changed it so extensively, I think they just want to double-check that they haven't missed anything. 
but I think they've heard all the debates, they've heard all the lobbying, and I think they'll push it through so that it's launched by 2000, or that it's in by 2017, and you have to implement by 2021. Yeah, I mean, that's quite a scary view. It's almost, okay, we've heard everything, no further sort of changes. Um, what is the political risk of that? Yeah. Sorry. I, I think the problem is almost the reverse political risk is that they keep on deferring. I think they've lost so much credibility from that. I think mm. this project is already on wobbly grounds for efforts. Yeah, yeah. Okay, great. Ray, uh, from a smaller company perspective? Um, yeah, for me, I guess uh, a lot of the smaller companies would be in a similar boat where they don't really want to commit to, to doing anything until the standard's finalised. Um, but I have seen uh, two companies who looked at it already. One has done a gap analysis to try to see what the impact will be. Um, and another company actually, because of their specific circumstances, um, they were trying to adopt it, uh, I think, earlier this year. So I, I think there's varying uh, levels of, of readiness, but on the whole, I don't, I don't think many companies are, are doing too much. Mm -hmm. Okay, and then Jeremy, just to the global perspective, are, are we alone in our uh, views here? <laughs> not, not really. I mean, um, the, the level of involvement and attention that uh, companies are, are paying towards uh, IFRS 4 um, in Asia um, does vary uh, as well. So some of the very large companies are spending some time and effort on it, but again, some smaller ones are sort of still trying to grapple with getting Solvency 2 over the line for their head office if they're a multinational corporation. And in many cases, they're just waiting for head office's direction. Um, interesting in terms of timing, so there was an ISB board member uh, in Hong Kong for a presentation um, a little while back, and, and he did tell uh, someone uh, in our firm that uh, they were still confident that they would get all their decisions made this year, um, which, uh, you know, is... We're almost there now, so um, I'm not sure whether they'll be able to, to make what he said, but he said as long as they get it decided at the end of this year, it'll be another six to seven months to write it up, and it should. Just, he was expecting the standard to still be out uh, mid, mid to late next year, um, largely because of the political reasons. I mean, they just need to get it out now. Um, a lot of them are just sick and tired of, of dealing with this, and they just want to get something done, I think. Um, in terms of lobbying, so some of the large companies have banded together to lobby to ISB through letters as well. And Actress Society of Hong Kong uh, also recently wrote something to the ISB uh, covering a few areas like indirect par, as Henny mentioned. So that's an area of concern, uh, the volatility in earnings that will arise with that potential method. Um, unit of account, um, discount rate, um, so if the, the yields or the bonds available in the market aren't long enough, they want to be able to have a long-term rate that you can sort of trend towards um, year to year, and also the unlocking of CSM, having a locked-in interest rate to roll it up. So we wrote something on that. Um, on, on the large companies who are actually starting to do something, we're seeing they're doing business impacts, and that may be two to three months' worth of effort, sort of looking at all kinds of impacts of it on the operations, on the systems, um, HR impacts, um, future-proofing projects that they currently have in force uh, or that projects that they have online to come through. Um, and 
in general, the sort of thing that we're saying and, and that, that um, the message that we get um, from these companies after they've gone through it is, you know, it's best to start early, start small, and just plan and investigate and take your time to, to get through it because if you try to do it in a rush, um, it may come... Uh, it, it may it may be a big surprise, and when you when you get to 2019, 2020, there's not enough factories in any of the markets to be able to do this, because everyone's doing IFRS at the same time, apart from the US. Mm. Um, what else? Um, some companies have done financial impacts, um, high level again. Um, some companies have just dived straight in and said, right, we want you to study how to do a top-down discount rate calculation, which just jump straight in from a market where interest spreads and negative spread is a, is a real concern. So depending on what the market is, they have different concerns as well that they want people yeah. to start looking at. Um, and the other thing would be training. So even within Deloitte in Asia, I mean, we are, you know, we put together a training pack for not only the actuaries, but also for the accounting, IT, all the different parts of our practice that would need to help clients in the future to implement this so that everyone knows what all the different terms means. And then after clients hear that we've been doing that, some of them are actually saying, well, can you come and give that boot camp to us as well? Because we know that it's not just the actuaries who need to know about this as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I think that's also consistent with the, you know, so starting early, developing sort of awareness. I think we've seen a common theme, you know, with most of the companies here as well, developing working groups of experts you know, to keep apprised of it and then also you know sort of starting to sort of spread you know some of that information but I guess that's the next step is you know sort of widening uh, that sort of base um, just out of interest uh, I had thought of using the voting technology but uh, it has sort of escaped me so maybe if I can just put you guys all on the spot who thinks the standards actually going to come out next year come on Ray put your hand up high <laughs> so what's that 50, 50. Okay. okay, typical actuarial sort of stochastic voting. Yes. Um, so I don't know, I'd say, what's that, probably like two out of six. So it's like roughly, uh, I think, is the sentiment. So, so if we don't meet, um, you know, next year, um, what does that mean? Michael? <laughs> I guess it means the same as it's been the last few years. Um, this project has been extended quite regularly. I yeah. think it it just makes it more difficult to actually get management on side, to get the board on side, yeah. that there's lots of work to be done here and we need to get yeah. started. Yeah. I mean, are there any particular constraints if we push it out much more than next year? Um. No, not really. I mean, I think things, it's not like IFRS is completely broke and we've We've got other measures. I mean, it's not like as an industry we're pleading for a different basis. I think this was very much a project to try get global <coughs> consistency, or at least with countries that follow IFRS. Um, but as a South African industry, I think IFRS, as it currently is, is meeting its requirements. Yeah. Okay. So, I mean, I think that's uh, enough sort of background on you know sort of our views on getting sort of going. Um, you know, that earlier sort of slides have showed, you know, quite a few years worth of, you know, potential effort in there. Um, you know, so one sort of question I sometimes sort of hear from people is, well, we've just, we just done SAM, you know, what more do we need to do? It's got the same building blocks. Um, um, so is it as simple as that? Uh, I think maybe 
Quinton, uh, starting on, on, on your side. Yeah, I think, I think we're definitely in a better position because of Sam, but um, I suspect that the, the, the differences will, will be quite significant and the challenges that we will face, in particular I think in terms of the performance measurement, so the income statement, um, is something that, that didn't feature uh, prom prominently under Sam. Sam was very much or is very much a solvency or balance sheet focus whereas uh, the IFRS is, although it's got the same building blocks, it is definitely a performance focus. So I think the, the challenges of that shouldn't be underestimated. The involvement of, of actuaries to populate the income statement, um, something that just can't just be extracted from a ledger, um, is, is also going to be a challenge from a, almost a softer perspective in terms of the, the interaction and the structures around the working uh, the way we work between the accountants and the actuaries. So I think um, there's going to be a lot more of, of, of those um, types yeah. of softer issues that will have to be yeah. managed. Sorry to sort of interrupt you. I mean, it might just be useful just to give very sort of high-level sort of description of, you know, what does the revenue sort of account actually sort of look like, you know, because you're saying there's big sort of change there. Um, you know, so what is, does premiums not appear on the income statement anymore? Do claims not appear? Yeah, so, so in my, in my um, view or my current understanding is that the income statement will become very much more like a, an analysis of surplus. So you would, uh, revenue would be defined differently. It would not be defined in terms of premiums, but rather premiums earned, as simplistically yeah. said. So um, these, and these metrics all exist within the actuarial models. So they are there. They, they, we currently produce them as part of our embedded value reporting and analysis of surplus. But the accuracy, the time, the robustness, and the speed with which this flows into the financial statements is, I think, where the, the biggest challenge will be. And I think one, one area that, that should definitely also not be underestimated where Sam um, was maybe slightly lighter than, than IFRS is the fact that this standard will, be, will apply to all our subsidiaries. So even our African subsidiaries, um, and I think that challenge should not be underestimated, the data and, and, and requirements involved with that. Yeah, so I mean, Marco, I mean, you obviously also have lots of subsidiaries knocking around. Um, do you echo some of Quinton's feelings? Very much. Uh, uh, I think the biggest challenge uh, relative to SAM is SAM, is, as Quinton said, was very balance sheet focused, which is typically the area actuaries have played in anyway. Whereas here, there's a large income statement component, and if not well built and automated, it's going to be very difficult to audit um, income statements. Also, it's going to become more and more that the uh, accountants rely on the actuaries for almost the whole income statement, which we're not really used to. Um, I think there are potentially clever ways to automate it, that almost the accounting system can be fed with the correct feeds and that, that it follows a very similar principle than currently, but almost what you define as premium income and that will change. So my understanding of it, for example, premium income is not as we define it now, but is very much more what are our charges. So what are the contribution charges? What are the risk fees we take? What are So not all the other components of premium, which is very different to the way we've been currently seeing it. Right, right. And Henny van Wyk at Sunderland, I mean, do you, 
Is this going to be a big challenge, this rewiring of the income statement? This is one area where we are quite lucky that we are, I think, ahead of the curve. In our actuarial systems, that is really the way we've looked at profits for many, many years, probably about at least 30 years. So that is, that is the way we've always looked at profits. And in the last number of years, our group finance people have actually implemented a new financial system where where they actually get that into the financial statements, oh, sorry, into their system. It's always, it has been in our financial statements for a number of years that we actually show our profit as financial services income, less commission, less expenses, less unwritten benefits. So for us, the pipeline is there to get the information through. Uh, we also don't have a problem with the fact that we need to know what the investment component is when a policy dies. We actually have that and we've had that for 30 years. Uh, of, well, since we implemented universal life, which was in 1985, if I remember correctly, it's 30 years. Um, so I think that part for us, the pipeline is there, mm. but obviously the information we have to give through will be slightly different mm. uh, and packaged in different ways. Mm. So it's a question of just packaging that differently from the actual system and giving through to the financial system. So uh, we, we're quite lucky about that one. Yeah. Uh, we think the profit models that, we ha uh, that was strange for Sam is also a good start for what we need. Um, obviously, tweaks are needed, and the one thing that, that is the most interesting part is what you do with a contractual service margin, which you probably want to calculate mm. in profit, otherwise you have to do it on a spreadsheet on the side, which uh, obviously is not, not yeah. a good thing and not really auditable. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So but, but just to say, to get that information yeah. If you're starting from scratch into a financial system, is a lot of work. Yeah. But I mean, it sounds like okay. It sounds like you're feeling quite happy with a particular position. Did, did that take quite a bit of effort you know, to get into that sort of state? Yeah. It well, the the project to get all of that information into the financial system was a two-year project. Yeah. And that was, but I say at least the actual part was yeah. done before that. Yeah. Yeah. But for the changes we had to make and some of the other people had to make to get in there is, was a major project. Yeah. Right. Okay. Great. So we've heard about um, you know, sort of impact income statements, you know, sort of revenue, some of the technology sort of aspects. Henny, you know, sort of any other sort of areas, uh, Henny Miller, yeah. any other sort of areas where you sort of feel um, you know, there's, there's going to be sort of impact? And maybe just give us also your overall sort of assessment. Uh, how much work is this compared to Sam? Yeah. Well, I wouldn't be surprised if it's as, as big as Sam, um, but I, I do think it will depend on how important your IFRS profit is as a KPI measure um, for your business going forward, and how important it is in your investment case to, to investors. Um, so I do think you can, go, you can take one of two extremes. You can, one could be just to do the regulatory minimum yeah. and just do the minimum to comply, or the other end could be that you, you, you're trying to get a competitive advantage um, through financial reporting by providing information that's more meaningful and, and useful to, to, to users. And clearly that's going to come at a, at a greater cost. Um, so I think that's quite an important question to, to management to, to think about. So kind of what, what role is IFRS for, or yeah, IFRS profits on the insurance contract going to play in, in, your future, in your future investment case? And is it the right model? Um, mm. To, to, to be the key KPI for your, for your business. Mm. Right. Okay. And you know, any other impacts, do you think, you know, I mean, from product development or, or other business aspects? 
think, like, as I said, I, I do think there, there could be potential impacts on your hedging strategies that you currently use to, um, to hedge certain aspects of volatility to your IFRS profits. And um, clearly with the new contractual service margin, I do think there's going to be more naturally more, uh, a more smooth um, profile to your future profits. And um, you, you, you certainly will need to kind of look, relook yeah. any of those strategies. Yeah. Right. Okay, great. Raymond? Um, yeah, so for me, I think, um, I think companies just need to realize that unlike Sam, there's no sort of proportionality or, or, or shortcut. So I, th I think the effort's going to be similar no matter how big or how small you are in terms of uh, Quinton's point with the, the subsidiaries. Um, so I think that's quite, quite a key thing for companies to bear in mind. Yeah, so, so that's actually something that we've seen as well. So we've uh, worked with uh, some multinationals who had, you know, 10 or more operations within Asia. And the thing we found is that, you know, it didn't matter how big some of the smaller entities were, uh, after they'd worked through the business impact analysis on each of those entities, they realized that there's almost just as much work for the small entities as the big ones if they're operating in a, in a federated type model where um, each company is allowed to do uh, actual modeling or accounting um, the way they want to do it locally. Um, there may be benefits if you have some kind of shared service center where it's a common process used across the region, then you can probably get some leverage um, you know, for building an IFRS solution that can be used regionally, but some of the players um, have opted to have this federated model uh, to give more empowerment to the local um, uh, entities, and that now is sort of beginning to, to bite them in the bum in terms of effort required on IFRS. Um, I mean, I guess looking at it, so I think you're comparing to SAM, um, I guess I could compare to say something like Solvency 2. Um, so again, you've got a bell, um, you've got some kind of risk margin uh, or, or risk adjustment, but um, you know, under IFRS you need to be able to expl uh, uh, disclose what the, co uh, what the confidence interval equivalent would be for the risk adjustment. So even if you use a cost of capital method, you still need to then calculate what it would be um, if you were to present it as a confidence interval. And you also have the CSM in terms of actuarial modeling. Um, but then there are other things that come out like this. Uh, the unit of account, um, the level at which you do the calculations, um, contract boundaries may change. Um, you have this investment component that you need to strip out in this source of earnings analysis. So every death that occurs, you need to know um, what the surrender value was for that contract at the same time. So there's a lot of information that's needed. You need to change admin systems. You need to change actuarial systems. You need to change uh, sub-ledgers, ledgers, so it goes all the way through all the different systems from what we've seen. Um, and so the income statement and SOE-like analysis, I mean, a lot of companies do that, but generally not to a level that you could pass it to an auditor. Um, so a lot of them are done high level in a spreadsheet that won't cut it when it comes to audited financial statements. Mm -hmm. So they need to actually industrialize the process. Yeah. So that's going to require a lot of effort, I think, and having databases of all this information so you can drill down when needed. Um, um, what else? Um, I think that's comprehensive enough. Okay. <laughs> I can, I can but I mean, maybe just to sort of close it out, because I mean, the overarching sort of theme is, you know, the extensive sort of effort 
So again, to put you guys on the spot, sorry, it's not secret voting, but uh, if I put a hypothesis out that overall, it might come in different shape or sub guys, but overall, do we think this is similar order of magnitude? Not necessarily exactly the same or more or less. Similar order of magnitude as the effort put into SAM? Yes? Okay. So fairly, yeah, fairly consistent theme there. Okay, I promise not to make, try to keep it not technical. Um, so, but uh, one particular area where I think quite a lot of work around modeling and, you know, sort of decisioning needs to be made quite early on, as I warned in that one sort of timeline, is around uh, transition uh, and developing, you know, one's liability at, you know, at initial, the first balance sheet date that you, that you create. So, uh, again, I just wanted to, um, you know, sort of pick the, the panel's sort of brains uh, on their thoughts of some of the challenges around uh, that transition approach. Um, so I think we've probably got just less than 10 minutes uh, that we can cover, cover on that sort of topic. And then that sort of gives us about 10 minutes uh, for questions from the floor. So, um, Michael, uh, transition. Uh. Transition is a tricky one because they've given various approaches to do it. One's the most accurate type of approach, but from a system point of view, may be very difficult to actually get the information you require. Some of the simplified approaches may actually result in CSMs that are not at the levels where they should be. Um, I actually feel it may actually result in too small a CSM. The problem with that is the CSM basically is largely where your profit emergence comes from. Um, it also covers your overhead costs that can't be allocated sometimes to policies. So if your CSM is too small, you're really going to struggle to support or your, your earnings in future just are going to be tiny relative to what others may expect. Um, on the opposite of that, if your CSM is almost overcooked in size, you'll struggle actually to sustain those level of earnings that you're going to be reporting for the first few years. Um, so the problem with this is you really want that sort of Goldilocks level of the CSM, which you're likely most, well, the most likely way to achieve is to actually do the whole shebang, but practically that actually may not be possible. Any from Vogue? Yeah, I think very similar to that. I would imagine that for our newer products, we will try to do the whole shebang as it is, and because hopefully we would be able to get hold of that data and actually do it properly. Older products, I can't see that you can go back 30 years, 40 years to try to get the information. It is just too far in the past. So you'll have yeah. to do some kind of um, uh, uh, approximation to it. Uh, I mean, the third option is, is to go the fair value approach, but I think that is an option that one would definitely not want to do. I mean, your answers are going to be... Why, totally, why is that? Maybe just to... I think your contractual service margin is just going to be totally too low. You're yeah. not going to show profits in the future. So. Yeah because your, your value that you put your liabilities is not what you expect somebody else to pay, it is actually more than that. Hmm. Um, yeah, so the idea is that you just hope you have enough data available to be able to do the sums that you want to do. Hmm. Yeah. Do you think you have that data? I hope so. We will have to go and have a look there. We have lots of data available. Um, obviously, some of the information was not necessarily kept for all those years yeah. that you would hope you have it, but I mean, for example, for our universal life products, we have the build-ups for many years. We don't necessarily have all the information for, for prospective reserves yeah. for all the years. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, we will 
dig as far as we can. Yeah, but I think that's a common sort of theme is that yeah. actually start collecting that information, start thinking about it now, you know, not just policyholder data, but assumptions, economic data. Um, yeah, so Quentin, if you guys found all of that data. Yeah, I think I think the the um, I mean to add to the the problems of on the old products is especially the the mergers that that's gone through. So the legacy systems is sometimes legacy of legacy <coughs> systems, um, and with each you know with each um, merger, um, I think the data is lost and that data does not exist anymore. Yeah. So I think on the older products, um, especially on the legacy books. Um, it is going to be a big challenge, and I think, as, as, as Michael has alluded to, the the, the, the service margins that are, would typically correctly be attributed to those contracts is probably fairly sizable, given yeah. given the nature of those contracts. So, to not have any any margin on those contracts, I think, would would uh, would be a, quite a big problem. So, so we'll have to have to look at that. On the newer generation products, I think we've created some of our own problems here yeah, because I think the complexity of some of these products and especially the options that we have allowed policyholders in terms of alterations etc um, will add to the complexity of the calculation of the service margin so I don't think there's there's going to be uh, it's not going to be a fun exercise it is going to be a lot of data work um, and a lot of, of back testing so um, I think, yeah, so maybe one of the reasons we've delayed this one is it's, uh, it's like going to the dentist. Um, but yes, it's, I think, an important part to do. Yeah, yeah. And Henny, um, your view? Yeah, I think we, we share the same problems. Um, just actually, I just re recently read that there's now also a new disclosure requirement in that you, for the contractual service margins that you've calculated on a full retrospective approach, that you've got to show those, those disclose those contractual service margin separate from the ones that you actually calculated on a simplified approach. So right. just some further complexity that's added to the world. Um, that one practical issue that I thought about is the fact that um, within the new contractual service margin there's a very prescribed approach that will be used to, to run off mm. to release profits in future. And, and that approach can be very different to the current approach mm. that companies have used to release profits um, yeah. from their products. So I think if you get to that, that transition point, um, you, you, you can find for certain companies that release profits faster than the new, the new requirements, that they could be in a position where they, where they need to set up liabilities that are greater than the current liabilities that they hold, which will have a knock-on impact on their shareholder equity. You also have the reverse of companies that release profits slower than, than the new requirement, and, and they will be in the position where they have where they have margins that they've not actually had as profit, mm. but that will mm. be, have to be transferred directly through to show all the equity. Mm. So mm. it will, will be quite interesting to, to see over the next few years up to IFRS 4 implementation whether companies actually start increasing or decreasing their discretionary margins to minimize the impact on transition. Um, yeah. I'm sure that's something that auditors will, will look at quite closely um, just to see whether those actions are above board, but um, yeah. Yeah. it does seem to be very penal not to be able to get uh, margins on, ever to see margins coming through to profit, and that it immediately yeah. goes through into shell equity, but yeah. that could be an outcome. Yeah. So, I mean, it seems, again, you know, it requires quite a bit of, sort of thinking, actually looking at 
you know, putting a, t a hypothesis model in place and seeing how it behaves compared to what it did in the past or, mm. or, or what you would like to sort of achieve. Mm. Okay, in the interest of time, I'll just skip to Jeremy to sort of sure. close out on this question before. <coughs> yeah, I, on this one, I think um, you just have to think about how much work is really needed. So, um, I mean, we're going to have to show three balance sheets um, when it goes live in, let's say, 1st of Jan 2020 for, for the sake of picking a date. Um, and then that first date that you show it in, say, 2018, you're going to have to actually have this transition calculation goes all the way back. And to do that, then you need all the data, you need all the assumptions year by year, because you need to get the CSM year by year in the past, and you actually need your model to be built before you even do any of that. So you almost need to have built your whole solution, and then you can start transition. So there is quite a lot of dependency um, here in, in terms of the work required. And so you should really start looking at dependencies and what's being required and you know, start looking at getting data assumptions now and start thinking about you know, where will it be impracticable for me to do the full retrospective method? When will I have to go to the approximate or simplified method? And when should I go to the fair value approach? Um, because the results may be different as well, depending on what point you switch from one method to the other. Okay, great. Um, I'll just do a quick uh, sort of recap before opening the floor to some questions. You know, so the key themes that we said, and I have stolen Jeremy's words here, is around sort of starting early, start thinking about it, uh, you know, having some teams of people sort of thinking about some of the concepts before, um, um, you know, because some of the concepts actually become more complex than you realize, you know, and um, yeah, the, the sooner one sort of starts, probably the better you know, that one becomes aware of these uh, complications. And then the other sort of theme is around effort being at least similar order of magnitude uh, to SAM. Uh, the big change being the focus is on income statement or revenue, and also that theme of robustness and reliability. It's one thing producing an AOS or something that you produce to one sort of committee, but it's another thing uh, when you're presenting it on your financials, audited, um, and all of management and shareholders are being incentivized and rewarded on that. Uh, you know, the speed and you know, the amount of rigor that's required on some of those estimates is a, a different order of magnitude. And then also the sort of actuaries and accountants are working together, uh, sort of came out and some of the other impact. And then finally on transition, um, you know, so quite a bit of work and effort around, you know, first the modeling, understanding what different options you have, what different impacts they have on your earnings profiles, both with new business but also for your enforce as it uh, unfolds. Uh, and then the final thing that I raised, you know, sort of earlier is actually, you know, it's not going to be long before people are going to be wanting to get budgets or forecasts taking into account this of impact. Stakeholders, um, you know, shareholders, uh, analysts will want to actually start understanding some of that sort of impact. Okay, so we've now just got just less than sort of ten minutes available um, for, and this is actually the best part of this uh, this panel. For once, as a chairman, I don't have to answer any questions. <laughs> I can just lob it to the panel. Um, so, um, looking out there, does anybody have any? Any questions for our panel? Okay, I've got the usual thing. I've got at least one or two questions up my sleeve whilst you sort of think about it. Um, one, one technical sort of area we haven't sort of um, 
you know, sort of thought about or sort of discussed much is the risk margin. You know, so uh, is that risk margin the same as our SAM risk margin? Does it have to be? Do we want it to be? What, what impact does that have? And uh, I don't know. Michael, you're smiling there, but that, no, actually, Quinton, you're just hiding Quinton. I think let's give this one to Quinton to, to have a think about. <coughs> so, so I had the, the privilege to, to be responsible for the drafting of the SAM uh, technical specifications around the risk margin. And, um, you don't the, think there's no coincidence while well, <laughs> I ask you this question? <laughs> so, um, and I can remember the, the debates we had about the 6% and the pres prescription of the 6%. And um, I think very much the whole debate around IFRS will probably, again, evolve around that because I think the approach for the calculation of the risk margin is sensible and is sound. Um, there are, are other approaches, but I think it, you know, given the similarities with SAM, I think that's probably where, where we will tend towards. Yeah. Um, but most of the debate will probably be around the 6% and what that rate um, should be and the constituent parts of that and the linking of that to economic capital. Um, so I think there's, there's probably where, where most of the, the effort and work will go into it with regards to the, the risk margin. I do, I do think that you can also include, you can also include a risk adjustment in respect of, of market risks. So mm. it's, it's not very well defined under IFRS. So there's obviously also then ways to try and look at your, try and manage your earnings profile by allowing yeah. for certain market, market risks and trying to, um, yeah. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I think that's a key point. Uh, I don't know if you want to sort of expand on it. How, how by managing your risk margin or your, you know, what risks you included, can you impact on your earnings profile? Well, I think if you look at the equity dampener currently under, under SAM, um, you could do something very similar where you, you could decide to, to increase your risk adjustment, but it's also obviously driven by market um, forces. You could increase your risk adjustment in, in times when, where the market, equity market is high and reduce it at, at times when the equity market is low. Mm. Um, that will also generate the natural smoothing of, of, of earnings. Um, that's one option. <laughs> Let's just check. We don't have any auditors here, do we? <laughs> no, there's it, it, nothing. If, if yeah. it's a prescribed and set approach, mm. um, then, it, then it is allowable. It's the, mm. You can't, in my opinion, you just can't change from one valuation period to the next. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Looks like Michael's got some comment on this. My view is the approach you may want to do it is actually quite different to the same approach because you may have, with changes in the risk margin, having to go through to the CSM, the calculation of the risk margin using the SAM approach for every single basis change you do is very complex. So maybe something similar to almost the, like a prescribed margin for each risk like we currently have in IFRS mm. that's calibrated internally to what your risk is, what I think mm. may be an easier approach. Um, I think another area where almost lobbying is still required as a result of this huge flex given to risk margins so companies can follow whatever they want to do. Essentially, we have to disclose the confidence level of our liabilities over the lifetime of the liabilities. And in my view, that is a panacea of the number that we'd all like to have in terms of liabilities. It's just almost impossible to derive. So 
the general feeling is there, the only way we can lobby it is to go, well, we're going to disclose as much as possible to tell you how this risk margin's calculated mm. so that you can assess for yourself what the confidence level of liability is. Okay. Great. Um, ah, we've got some hands out there. So, Andrew over there. Keep on thinking of questions. Okay, I've got a question here while the mic's moving around. Oh. Is that right? Uh, just a question regarding um, actuaries and accountants working together in the future. Um, how do you see this panning out over the longer term? Currently, if I understand it correctly, accountants can produce a revenue statement without a lot of input from actuaries. But going forward, they'll need a significant amount of input. And do you think over the longer term, uh, they'll be... Um, well, how do you see this panning out? Will they, need to, will they be looking at acquiring actuarial skills to produce our numbers? Or any comment on that, perhaps from Quentin? I think he raised the issue. Yeah, I, I think, um, I think it, it's the, the trick will be in the relationship between the, the different disciplines. Um, I think the, the strength and skill set of the actuary is actually to, to, to de derive, interpret, review the number, um, whereas the accountants are stronger at reporting those numbers. Um, and I think we, like Michael has alluded to, we will probably have to work with our IT, IT colleagues, etc., to build a process that, that facilitates the reporting of these numbers um, from our models into the financial reporting systems robustly, accurately, and quickly. Um, but I don't. I, I'm not necessarily. I, th I think the boundaries between the two the two disciplines will remain, um, but we will be much more involved um, with each other. Andrew, um, some of the comments have been around. Um, one of the big differences between the work required for SAM, Solvency Two, and this is that for smaller entities, you've got to do a proportional, probably disproportionate amount of work. Um, and it actually concerns me to the extent that is, I mean, should we as a profession um, be lobbying more? Because of what I worry about is that the cost of reporting, both in terms of setting it up and ongoing reporting for smaller entities and thinking of, you know, outside Africa or even smaller, smaller companies here, is actually the public interest um, given these costs of reporting on the businesses, I mean, you know, we, we sort of talk and joke around it being full employment for actuaries and, and that sort of thing. But at the same time, I can see a lot of work happening, you know, a lot more than we're doing for, for some, you know, for, for smaller insurers because we have to compile with IFRS hmm. in, the, in those local, hmm. uh, local environments. I'm actually worried that, that this is almost going to make the industry sort of sub-economic because the, the overhead's going to be so big. Okay. Well, I mean, any chance to do shortcuts? Yeah. Yes. So, Jeremy, you spoke to quite a bit about lobbying, and then Michael, you also spoke. So, I don't know whether you've got any sort of perspectives on the effectiveness of lobbying, possibly. Effectiveness of lobbying. Um, well, I think that the more that different parties are, are, do lobby to the ISB, the, the more likely it is that those points will be heard. So I think um, the South African um, Actuarial Society has written some, some comments to ISB and 
I know in Hong Kong they have as well, and, and various companies are directly writing letters as well. So the, the volume of um, letters that come in questioning certain aspects, I think, um, I, I guess it's more likely that they'll, they'll listen to it, um, just the sheer volume um, will, will, will warrant it. Um, but I think the question was, it was um, more around the impact on small companies, I think. Um, so, at the moment with the companies that we've been uh, working with in the Asian region, I mean, they're just expecting that they will have to roll this out. I mean, the, the large MNCs are thinking, even the small entities, that they're going to have to fully roll something out. Um, and I guess, you know, there may be some uh, companies in similar situations here where you may have a large South African base and um, some satellite offices throughout the rest of Africa. And um, I would imagine that at this stage, yes, you should be a little bit concerned about the effort that may be needed if you're not adopting a shared service type arrangement where you can actually get some leverage across making a change to a system centrally that can then be used effectively throughout the rest of the entities in, in Africa. Okay. Sorry, we, Sorry. we have you know, sort of run out of time. Um, okay. Can we keep it as one very short question? I just wanted to ask um, if anybody's considered the implications of FS4 Phase 2 on our pricing, if there's a view on what those implications are, and given that majority, if not all of our retail products we sell, have terms that extend out beyond 2020, has any of the companies already been taking mm -hmm. this into account in any way? So, I think Henny Miller actually sort of lobbed a slight question around pricing um, there. I sure. don't know whether... Not really something I, I thought of, but um, <laughs> um, I would think that, that pricing is something that would be done kind of quite independently from your IFRS reporting. Um, yeah. That just would be my very short answer. Um, I don't know if any other views. Yeah. I guess, you know, so the answer is how you're actually managing your business at the moment. If you're doing it on a sort of economic capital, you know, sort of risk-adjusted basis, mm. hopefully, well, the profit ultimately sort of comes out. Um, mm. Anyway, um, we, we have run out of time. We're about a minute or two over. I apologize for taking your time. But uh, if we could just please uh, give the panel a round of applause and thank them.